0: I want to begin today, as we get into this series, asking a a kind of serious question. And uh, when you learn to preach, they tell you not to do this. You're supposed to start with a joke or with something lighthearted and, you know, have it get more serious. But I want to ask a a more reflective, more serious question as we start. And it's kind of a trick question. So it's double hard, serious and tricky. Here's the question. What did Jesus die to give us? What did Jesus die to give us? When Jesus died, what was he hoping we'd receive as a result of his death in our place? What did Jesus die to give us? Now, it's a trick question because there's a lot of ways you could answer it and be right. All right maybe you would say, well, uh, Jesus died to give us eternal life. Yes, that's right. Maybe you'd say Jesus died to give us forgiveness of sins. That's right. Maybe you'd say, Jesus died to give us the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's right. But what's the thing that holds all of those things and so many other things we might say together? What is it that holds eternal life and forgiveness of sins and the kingdom of God together? What did Jesus die to give us? I think the core answer to that question is relationship with God. Eternal life comes through relationship with God. Forgiveness of sins comes through relationship with God. The kingdom of God is about having relationship with God. Right? Many of you who are followers of Christ, you would talk to your friends who aren't believers and don't believe our faith, and you would say to them, you would say, hey, 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 you're misunderstanding things. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. So if we think about that, think a little bit deeper now, Jesus died to give us relationship with God. What's one of the main core ingredients of every relationship? Communication, right? In premarital counseling and marital counseling, communication is constantly coming up, why? Because communication is how you express your heart to one another, it's how you know each other, it's how you know not just the facts, but what's going on under the surface, it's communication. That's at communication's at the heart of a relationship. So think about this. If communication is at the heart of a relationship, and if Jesus died to give us relationship with God, then in a very real sense, Jesus died to give us prayer. If the way we experience relationship with God is by hearing His Word, Him communicating to us, and speaking back to Him in prayer then Jesus died to give us prayer. Now, that whole, that, that idea, that, that reality has transformed the way I've been thinking about prayer over at least the last year. Uh, and, and I still drift into other ways of thinking about prayer that aren't as helpful, but that way of thinking about prayer has helped me so much because I have often thought about prayer as a duty, prayer as a responsibility, Right, I, I ought to do this. I'm supposed to pray. Right, The Bible says pray without ceasing. And, and when you pray, pray like this. And I'm supposed to pray. Right, I'm supposed to do it. In order to be a good boy, I need to pray. Or I've often thought of prayer as a tool in order to be useful, right? in order to get things done, in order to become a kind of leader, in order to have God do the things we want him to do. I need to use the tool of prayer. Now get this: prayer is a responsibility, and prayer is a tool. But at its core, what, what now motivates my prayer is to realize, Jesus died to give me this. I can have relationship with God, communication with God, anytime, any place. I don't have to go to a priest. I don't have to go to a particular building. I don't have to face a particular direction. I have access to relationship with God all the time because that's what Jesus gave me. That's what prayer is. Now that paradigm shift, I think, moves prayer from being something you feel guilty about or something I ought to do more of to something that all of a sudden I now want to do. And so what we're gonna do this summer is is learn to pray. Now, my assumption just headed into this series on the Psalms on learning to pray is that there are at least five kinds of people in this room. Okay, so you can figure out which kind of person, which, one you've, you've, which category you fit in. First kind of person here are those of you who have no interest in prayer. you especially if what, I've, what it is, is relationship with God, communication with God, uh, listening to and talking to God. You go, I, I'm not really interested in that. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I want much to do with that. And so if you're here, and that's your sense, we're thrilled you're here. And thank you for being honest about that. Uh, we're, we're delighted you'd be here. I hope you'll come back. I hope that as we talk today, and if you come back in coming weeks, that there might be something where you go, you know what, maybe there is something to have in a relationship with God. Maybe I do want it. But for now, that's okay. You can listen in, but we're glad you're here. Second, there are those of you who've never been taught to pray. You want to pray, you feel like you ought to pray, but you've never been taught. Or, or maybe what you were taught was just like, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep right. And that's the only thing you've ever known of prayer. Or, or maybe you know the Lord's Prayer, maybe you know the rosary, maybe you know some ca- sort of memorized prayers, but but you hear people talk to God and you kind of look up to go, Are, did they have that written down? Oh no, they're just talking. How do they do that? How'd that happen? Sometimes maybe you hear people pray and you feel like you're listening to a foreign language, right? Maybe sometimes it's because they their voice changes. Oh dear Lord, right? And you go, oh, I don't, "Am I supposed to? How am I supposed to talk? What am I supposed to do?" Or or you hear them say, "Just." like a hundred times in their prayer. Lord, we just ask that you do this. Lord, we just are so thankful that you're here today. And Lord, we just, we just, we just, we just. And you're like, just? It seems like a lot of things you're just asking for, right? And, and you're just, you start listening in. You're like, I don't know the code. I don't know the language. I've never been taught. What do I do? Hopefully this series will help you learn to pray and, and learn that there's not a particular posture and there's not a particular tone of voice. You can just talk to the Lord like you talk to anybody. Here's a third kind of person here. Those of you who have weak prayer muscles. Your prayer muscles are weak. You know the value of prayer. You've been taught how to do it, but your, your muscles are weak. And maybe it's just that the, these prayer muscles are out of shape, right? You've exercised them too infrequently, right? Sometimes uh, you'll go through a season of life, you know, maybe a few weeks where you're really sick and you can't work out. Maybe a decade where you just take a break from exercise or. Whatever it is, right? And you go, I'm going to get back into it and I'm going to exercise and I'm going to lift weights and, right? and you get up to the top of the stairs on the way to the gym and you're like, that was good. I'll do it again tomorrow, right? And, or you lift and it just feels like I can't move any muscle in my body and you just sort of walk around like this because you're just not in shape. You're in physical shape. Same thing with prayer. I've had times in my life where uh, someone has said, hey, we're going to spend the next hour and we're going to pray. And I think, what am I going to do for the other 59 minutes? <laughs> All right, because you can just be out of shape because you just, like, the idea of really spending extended periods of time communicating with God is like, I don't even think I'd know how to do that. My stamina runs out real fast. Or maybe you have weak prayer muscles because you've only exercised one part of prayer. All right, this is like the guy who, like, every day is arm and chest day, right? And he just has little twigs, but is, you know, he's just this humongous hulking figure and you're like, mix in a leg day, man, right? <laughs> and some of you, this is how prayer is, right? You're, you're, you have mealtime prayer, cold. You have, Lord, I'm headed into this meeting and it's gonna be really hard, help me. You got that one cold. Right, but your prayer has been so limited to just a few narrow things, and you're really strong there, but when you think about, how do I confess sin? How do I praise God? How do I give thanks? How do I intercede? I mean, how, right? you have just all these other muscles that, that just aren't very strong. They're underdeveloped. Fourth, there's those of you who pray, but don't really pray. And here's what I mean. I've talked to people who who they'll say, oh, I pray all the time. I pray in the car, I pray while I brush my teeth, I pray in the shower, you know, I just, I can pray to God anytime I want. But when they unpack it a little more, what you realize is that their prayer is often very quick, uh, very in the moment, and without any kind of deep communication with God. Now, now get this, it's awesome that we can pray on the go, that we can pray anytime, all of that is a wonderful gift of the gospel. But, but prayer is, Jesus is inviting us to relate to him at a deeper level. He, here's what this fourth category is like. It's like the husband and wife who their only conversations are about schedules. Who, who's picking up, you know, Biff from soccer and who's, who's doing this and what are we doing tomorrow and, and w- w- what's next weekend look like? And, are, and yet they would kind of look at it and go, we talk all the time, but we don't really talk. We say words a lot, but we don't really connect. And some of you, that's how it is for prayer. You talk to God a lot. You pray a lot, but you don't really pray. Then there's a small group of you, I think, who truly pray, right? You're the people, and and you wouldn't even know this about yourself probably, because that's the impact prayer's had on you. But everyone else listens to you pray and is like, how do they do that? Wow, that's interesting. And you're not praying to be heard by other people so they go, wow, that's interesting. You just pray because you have this deep thing with God that's beautiful and sweet. And you treasure your opportunities to, to, to lean into God through prayer. Your reflex to stuff is, is pray. Right? The rest of us, our reflex is plan or freak out. Your reflex is, is prayer. Now, if I'm going to be honest, A lot of my life as a Christian has been spent in three and four. And even now, a lot of my life's in three and four. I think I'm moving toward five, but it's frustrating how slow. And so, God has given us a book to help us with this the Psalms. The Psalms are a book that can help us to exercise our prayer muscles and to move into relationship with God where we talk to him all throughout the day and all the little moments and all the places we need him, but we also really connect with him. We really draw close. We really experience the joy of his presence. That's what the Psalms invites us to. So, here's what I'm going to do for the rest of this message. I'm going to spend some time just kind of introducing the Psalms. For this series, we've picked a dozen Psalms, and we're going to look at them. There are different kinds, different places. It's not like we're just doing the first 12. Uh, we're going to kind of bounce uh, throughout the, 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 the Psalter, is what the whole thing is called. Um, but I want to give you kind of an overview of some things just as we look at each of these Psalms so that you kind of can make sense of what we're looking at. All right? So, the, the, the next chunk's going to be kind of background info on the Psalms, it'll be kind of informational. And then I want to take some time and actually turn to Psalm 1 and 2, which are really, the book gives as kind of its own introduction, all right? Well, if we're going to move from talking about God to talking to God, the Psalms can help. And so here's a few things you need to know about the Psalms. First, the Psalms are poetry. The Psalms are poetry. If you've ever tried to write poetry, if you ever read poetry, both of you, um, you'll know that poetry engages a different part of a a person. It moves kind of out of just the intellect and into the emotion, into the heart. Prayer is, po- or the Psalms are poetry. Uh, we have a ministry here called Exodus Groups. Just an amazing ministry. We run it a couple times a year and it uh, goes for a few months and it helps people um, deal with things in life that they don't really like to talk about most of the time. Areas of sin, areas of abuse, areas of addiction, areas of just struggle, areas of, I'm just trying to figure out what, where am I headed in my life? That kind of stuff. And using kind of the Exodus story from the Bible as a, as a paradigm of going from slavery to going to freedom. And one of the exercises that everyone who does Exodus groups has to do is to write a psalm. I've gone through Exodus groups. I had to write a psalm. And it's really hard. It's one thing to just sort of write a journal entry or write, God, here's some information about what's going on in my life. But But to craft poetry, to craft a psalm, it engages a different part of you. And, and, and honestly, most people that go through Exodus groups really struggle with it, which is okay. But it's poetry. And then when you think these psalms were often sung, they were set to music. Well, music engages a whole other part of a person, right? There are just certain tunes you can hear and you start crying because it just connects with you in such a way. So the psalms are poetry. If you read the psalms in just sort of this wooden literal way, you'll go, God's a rock? Wow, like... And you'll see a rock and go, God, no, 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 no. Right, it's all this imagery and this figurative language because it's poetry. Here's the second thing about the Psalms. The Psalms are intentionally arranged, intentionally arranged. There's a phenomenal video, we put it on Facebook, we emailed it out to you from the Bible Project. It's eight minutes long, and it describes the structure and the arrangement of this book, and basically what you see is that the Psalms are written by many different authors over hundreds of years, but there was a certain point at which they were all compiled and organized together. All right, the people had been brought, just to kind of recap the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, they were brought out through the Exodus by Moses, They then eventually ended up in the promised land. There was a long period of time with kings and all that sort of stuff. They weren't faithful to God, so they were sent into exile in Babylon. After 70 years, they were brought back. And it's when they're back in the land that somebody, most scholars think it was probably Ezra, took all these Psalms that had been written and he didn't just go, well, I got this one first, so we'll put it first. And I got this one last, so I'll put it last. He took all these Psalms and he organized them with a very intentional structure. What you actually see, and uh, most of your translations uh, show you this, is before Psalm one, it'll say book one. After Psalm 41, it'll say book two. After Psalm 72, it'll say book three. There are five books of the Psalms. And uh, one of the ways you see that this is an organized thing is that at the end of each of these books, right, here's what it says at the end of, of Psalm 41. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. There's something like that at the end of each of these books, blessed be the Lord. And they're organized in this intentional way. Five books corresponding to the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, corresponding to the Torah. It's a kind of new Torah for prayer. And it's organized and it's intentional. And what you see is that the early parts of the Psalms, especially, really lean into lament and grief. And God, why is this happening? And how can it be this way? And then the end of the Psalms, especially at the very end, are praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Right? There's a, there's a, a kind of story, in a sense. So one of the things I hope you'll do this summer as we study this book is to read the Psalms from beginning to end and see, are there elements, are there certain, right, it's not a story, but are there themes that make up a kind of storyline that is actually similar to the rest of the Bible? I think you'll find it. Here's the third thing about the Psalms. The Psalms are true to the full human experience. The Psalms are true to the full human experience. In the Psalms, you find unbridled joy, bitter complaint, thoughtful arguments, heartfelt requests, billowing despair, and resolute trust. You find all of that there. It's not just this one narrow muscle of the human experience, and that's the only thing we talk about is praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. No, it talks about all kinds of stuff, right? And and scholars have broken the Psalms down into various genres. There's Psalms of Lament, and there's Psalms of Thanksgiving, and there's Royal Psalms, and there's Psalms of Trust, and there's all these different kinds of categories, and yet what you see when you read them is that all of these things kind of, in a sense, blend together, but maybe in one bigger Psalm, one is just a little bit bigger than the other. So I think about it like country music. I love country music. Yeah, especially in the summer, summer country music's just awesome, right? And, but, but pretty much, there's three categories of, of country songs, right? There's songs about the girl you're in love with, there's songs about your truck, and there's songs about headed out to the water in your truck to be with the girl you love, right? I mean, it's pretty much these are the big buckets. Now, every song has all three of those, but some just more than others. It's the same thing with the songs. There's this wide experience of all these human emotions that go into it. And so this leads us to the fourth thing about the Psalms you gotta see, is that the Psalms are scandalously honest. The Psalms are scandalously honest. When I say honest, I don't mean like, did you steal the cookies, honest? Or does your Facebook profile look like your real life, honest? Those are important questions. But the Psalms invite us to a kind of honesty that's like the how are you doing really honesty and they invite you to be honest about it and especially to be honest about it with God now last week uh we had, a, a, as Redemption, you know, we, we preached through the same books of the Bible and stuff like that. But last week we had kind of an open week. We could each, each congregation did what we wanted. We had Landon here from Prescott who's planting a church there. At Redemption Scottsdale, Sean Mortensen is the lead pastor there. He decided to do an introduction to the Psalms. And uh, Sean and his wife Sharon have been through a really devastating miscarriage in the last few months. And um, he introduced his series in the Psalms and he called the message An Invitation to Honesty. And it was an amazing message. I went online and listened to it. I would encourage all of you to go listen to it. It's so, so, so good. And there was a part of it that I just thought, that is so good that I I listened to it and I just sort of transcribed as he was saying it. Here's what Sean said in that sermon. He said, is the church a place where people can say, I'm not okay, and work through it? We say that we value honesty, but we like it better if the wrestling a person is doing is something that happened in the past, and people are now sharing honestly about something that is resolved. Present tense honesty can be a little bit messy, and we don't tend to like that very much. We say we value honesty, but really only as long as it's filtered and sanitized and inspirational in some way, which is hardly honesty at all. Sometimes honesty has rough edges and even bad words. We say that we value honesty, but not if it touches on subjects that make us uncomfortable. We say that we value honesty, but only if it can be immediately spun for the positive, and we're often ready with platitudes to do the spinning for people. It just means God has something better for you, we tell the person suffering loss. The church has too often created a narrow spectrum of acceptable expression on acceptable topics. We've largely removed any oxygen for things like doubt or waiting or wrestling or lament or mystery or even unfiltered, unhinged praise. We want our songs to be positive and encouraging and we want certainty in our dogmas and we want action steps in our sermons and we want God is so good on the smiling lips of every person we see at church on Sunday morning. But the truth is that the Psalms expose our folly. The Psalms critique our narrowing of acceptable expression. Something in the Psalms, sometimes in the Psalms, we find expressions that make us want to say, shh, you can't say that in church. But here we have it in the Psalms. And this is God's word, meeting us in our humanity, giving us words for our condition, and teaching us how to relate to him in honesty. Don't you wish you lived in Scottsdale? You could go to that church. I mean, Sean's exactly right. Right, and there's wisdom, right? We shouldn't be as honest as possible with everyone we meet. That's probably not healthy. But the Psalms invite us to at least be honest with God. Some of you are here today. Your heart is broken. And your grief is overwhelming. And the darkness and hurt you feel feels like there's no end in sight. Some of you are angry and bitter and confused. Some of you are thrilled with delight. Can you be honest with God about it? Can you tell God what's on your mind and what's on your heart? Psalms invite you to. The Psalms model that. Over the course of this summer, we're going to see some yay God Psalms and we're going to see some what are you doing God Psalms. And all of it's okay. It's in God's word. And it's an invitation to a real relationship with your heavenly father. So that's the Psalms. Well, Psalm 1 and 2 provides a kind of introduction, and uh, there's there's actually some clues in the biblical text here that uh, Psalm 1 and 2 are really kind of the introduction before these five books of the Psalms, and here's a few clues. Uh, The first one is that uh, neither Psalm 1 nor Psalm 2 have a superscription. Uh, Here's what I mean. If you uh, have your Bible there, look at Psalm 3. Okay, you have Psalm 3. Uh, is there a kind of bold heading that, you're, that your publisher has put in your Bible? What, what's yours say? Save me, oh my God. Yeah, save me, oh my God. That might be a kind of bold title. Do you see something like that? Okay, that's put in there by the publishers, by the translators, just to give you a kind of here's what this thing's going to be about. It's a, it's a theme. But that's not actually in the Hebrew text. But then below that, it'll say something like this. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Do you see that? Sometimes it's in kind of small caps. That's called a superscription. And that superscription is in the biblical text. It's in the Hebrew. It's part of what was actually written down when it was written down. Now, almost all of the Psalms in the first book of the Psalms have this superscription, but not Psalms one and two. And it's an indication that Psalms one and two are meant to be a kind of introduction to the rest of it. Now there's another clue. Look at the first verse of Psalm one. And the last verse of Psalm 2, and you may be able to, I mean, you might be able to see both of these at the same time, perhaps. Psalm 1, verse 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, dot, dot, dot. The end of Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalms 1 and 2 uh, provide this sort of introduction to here's how you're going to be blessed as you seek God in prayer. Now, we need that kind of a transition. Uh, right? A lot of you, you come here on Sunday morning and you're understandably thinking about other things. Right, I, I, I'm a pastor, so I get here real early. I have a message to say, so I'm usually like I've prayed and spent time with the Lord and asked him for help. But, like when I go on vacation, I go to church. I just, go to, I just show up and it takes me a while to go, oh, yeah, this is kind of what this is about. I'm, I'm supposed to connect with God here. Oh, yeah. Right, and so we get it, we understand. It takes, it takes a little bit of time. We usually don't go real serious right at the very beginning of the service for that reason because you need some transition. And Psalm 1 and 2 provide that kind of transition. Here, here's what Eugene Peterson says. He, he wrote a book uh, that I read last year on sabbaticals. I was just, for my own sake, studying the Psalms. It's called Answering God, the Psalms as a Tool for Prayer. In that book, here's what he says about this. He says, The non-praying world is a pushing, shoving demanding world. Voices within and without harass, insisting that we look at this picture, read this headline, listen to this appeal, feel this guilt, touch this charm. It is asking too much that we move from this high stimulus world into the quiet concentrations of prayer without an adequate transition. You hear what he's saying? Right? Your your life and the world is go, 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 on, 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 high stimulus. And then you're supposed to go into deep contemplation and quiet reflection of prayer. You can't just go into that you need a transition so psalms one and two provide that transition they provide this introduction hey before you pray there's some things you gotta see that's what it's saying in psalm one and two so that's why we're looking at these together and and here here's the deal there are two things that psalm one and two show us that we need to see before we pray all right so let's look at the first psalm look at psalm one and here's what we see here's what we need to see in psalm one it's kind of the theme of the Psalm is Blessed is he who gives attention to the Torah. Look at a tree. What do you need to see? You need to see a tree. That'll make more sense here in just a moment. Why? Because blessed is he who gives attention to the Torah. That'll make more sense as we go here. Look at verse one. It says, Blessed is the man who who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Three descriptions of someone that's living for himself, that isn't interested in God. And the psalmist says, hey, you're not gonna be blessed if you're gonna live a life for yourself. But here's the one who's blessed, verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This word law is the word Torah. The word Torah means instruction. It means teaching. And actually, the Torah became known as the the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, became known as the Torah. Blessed is he whose delight is in the instruction of God, in the teaching of God, in the Torah of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, what image pops in your head when you hear the word meditate? Um, Right, something like that? That's not the biblical idea of meditation, right? That's Eastern meditation, and you get quiet, and you try to empty your mind of any thinking. Biblical meditation, the word literally means to moan or to growl or to mutter. That, that, that's what it is. It's not emptying your mind. It's filling your mind and... Sorry. Got out of control. It's filling your mind and, and, and chewing on it. and right? This is fascinating. This same Hebrew word, meditate, is used in Isaiah 34 to describe a lion over its prey. Ooh. Mm, mm, this is going to be good, right? That's how, right? In the same way that a lion, ooh, yeah, over its prey, that's how a blessed person is over God's word. Oh, yeah. Ooh, I love this. Oh, I want more. Oh, yes. Ooh, give me some, right? This is like, this is like going to eat at a good restaurant with Matthew Brazelton, right? And he just, Simmons, and he hits you, and it's like, what, what? This soup is so good, right? And it's like, right, that's. that's that's this person. If you've never done it, take him out and buy him soup. You'll he'll you've won a friend for life. That's how we're to be with the scriptures. That's how we're to be with God's word. Think about this for a second. Are you able to go, "Oh, I love God's word. It's so good." The reality is for a lot of us, we're not. And some of us, we know better. And this maybe is just God's invitation to say, hey, you know that God's word is truth. It's the source of life for you. Others of you, you go, I don't even know how to begin to delight in God's word. Because when I open the Bible, I feel like I go to the mall and I see the map, but I can't find the you are here thing. (laughs) Right? And I'm going, I don't, uh, that's how the Bible feels to you. And so we actually, this is just a quick plug. Uh, In a couple weeks, we've got a two-week class called Clarifying the Bible. And this class is simply to give you the you are here on the map of the Bible. So that when you open up the Old Testament, you know what you're reading. When you open up a letter from Paul, you know what you're reading. It's two weeks. Myself, one of our elders, Jeffrey Wilcoxon, are going to teach it and lead it. And we would love for you to be part of that. It could be maybe an introduction to you being able to go, oh, yes, I love the Bible. But the, the, the blessed one is the one who gives attention to the Torah, the one who listens to God. Why? Because prayer... Get this. Peterson makes this point in his book. Prayer is answering speech. Right? We pray after we've heard from God. Now we answer back. Right? So, so my, my little Mary is almost two years old. She'll be two in July. The last three weeks have been just this torrent of new words from her. And a while back, you know, a long time ago, we heard her first word. And I was so thrilled. you know what it was? Ball. Oh thank you, Mary. I love you. I have someone I can play catch with finally, you know, and, and, and that was her first word. But, but listen, that wasn't the first word in the relationship. She had had thousands with her sisters, maybe millions of words spoken over her, even before she was born, right? Science tells us that children can hear in the womb, Right, so she's had words just cascade over her, and then finally out comes bull. (laughs) And it's her first word, but it's not the first word, right? In the same way, prayer isn't the first word. Prayer is the answering speech. Prayer is after we've had God's word cascade over us and in our lives, now we begin to talk back to God. And when we do that, the psalm says there's a particular image that shows what we'll be like. You see it in verse three? Here's the image. It's the image of a tree. The person who does this is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Wouldn't you like to be planted, fruitful? No matter what comes against you, you don't wither. Wouldn't you like that? Yeah. That's what happens when you give attention to the Torah. When you let God's word speak into you and you prepare to pray by by hearing from the Lord, you become like a tree. Now it's interesting that this tree is then contrasted with chaff. Verse four, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. I've had a chance to, to be in Israel. Some of you have as well. And Israel's climate a lot of the year feels a lot like here. And, and the, the landscape especially, right? Like Superstition Springs could be Mount Sinai, it feels like. That's actually in Egypt, but that's okay. Um, but you, you see the difference, right? When you see tumbleweed going down the street, that's chaff. But then you go and you sit under a tree and you enjoy its shade, you enjoy its fruit. We're, we're supposed to dwell on that image. Think about that image of a tree. This is a great quote by Eugene Peterson. He says this in that book I mentioned. He says, praying to God begins by looking at a tree. The deepest relationship of which we are capable has its origin in the everyday experience of taking a good look at what's in everybody's backyard. We are not launched into the life of prayer by making ourselves more heavenly, but by immersing ourselves in the earthly We come to the prayer book of the Bible to get training in prayer. And the first directive is, go find yourself a tree. Sit down in front of it. Look at it long and thoughtfully. Why is that such an important thing to see? Because if you get into prayer thinking that it's going to cause you to escape into some sort of otherworldly realm, and it's going to cause you to be this super spiritual person That's not what the Psalms are about. The Psalms are about making you fruitful and strong and enduring here and now, right? It's not to get you into some netherworld of spiritual whatever. It's to make you vibrant here. So we need to see a tree. Second thing we need to see is in Psalm 2. Blessed is he who gives affection to the Messiah Amber Alert, and every person's phone in unison went nuts. <laughs> Holy smokers. You must have texted Amber Alert to 77977, and you all got it. Are we good? All right. That was weird. Jeez. All right, carry on. So Psalm 2 tells us, blessed is he who gives affection to the Messiah. Psalm one said, blessed is he who gives attention to the Torah. Now Psalm two, blessed is he who gives affection to the Messiah. And the image here is to look at the king. Right, in Psalm one, before we pray, we gotta look at a tree. In Psalm two, we gotta look at the king. What does that mean? Well, look at verse one of Psalm two. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Circle, if you're willing to write in your Bible, circle the word plot in chapter two, verse one, and then go back to chapter one and circle the word meditate. It's the same Hebrew word, right? It's the growling. He says, why do the nations rage and the peoples, ooh, yeah, here's our plans. We don't need God. We're strong. We're mighty. We're smart. We can do this. Ooh, yeah, here's our plan. And the psalmist says, why, does the, why, why do the nations, why do people do that in vain? But you know that people do that, right? You know that people of the world go, we don't need God. I got my own plots, I got my own plans, I'm excited, I can do this on my own. Verse 2 says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth, the rulers, the powerful, right, the powerful people reject God. That word anointed is the word Messiah. The Greek word for it is Christ. Right? When we say Jesus Christ, that wasn't his last name. Right? It didn't say Christ on the mailbox. And Joseph and Mary Christ lived there. That's not what it means. No. Christ is a title, it means Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And this psalm, written hundreds of years before Jesus, says the people in power. Are against God and against his Christ against his anointed that's true right these are the powerful people of the world the people who command armies the people who direct scientific advancement the people who run school systems the people who lead governments the people who shape the marketplace by and large not interested in God and I don't know about you but it can feel really really discouraging if you think all the power in the world is against god what good are my prayers i can pray but if anyone's doing anything in vain it feels like my prayers they even matter and if all you do is look at the tree and you see the here and now you go oh yeah but then it starts to get overwhelming because here and now what you see are a lot of people who are against god What do we need to see to give us hope to pray into a situation like this, into a situation where all the people with power don't want anything to do with the Lord? Well, first we need to see verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) God's just going, big boy. Big boy you are, snuff you out. Take your breath away, right? This king will die, that king will die, that prime minister will die, that president will die. All of us will die. We're grass. We wither. We fade. But the word of God stands forever. So God laughs. We can take the world too seriously. God laughs. And then what we have to see is that there's another ruler who's above these rulers. Look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, I've got a king coming, my anointed, my Christ. He's the king. Verse seven, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God says, listen, listen, there's a king above the king. There's a ruler above the rulers. He's my anointed, he's my son. And he will dash you in pieces if you don't acknowledge him. So verse 10, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Hey, 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 you think you're so smart. You think you're so important. You think you have this big, technological, educated, heroic utopia without me. Be warned. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Before we pray, we've got to see a tree. We've got to see that our prayers matter here and now. Our being instructed in the teaching of God and heeding it and delighting in it matters. It makes us strong. It makes us courageous in the here and now. But if we only focus on the here and now, it will overwhelm us. It will freak us out. We will get discouraged. We will lose heart. So we need to look at the king. The king who's above it. The king who rules it. The king to whom all other kings must answer. Before you pray, look at the tree and look at the king. Let's pray together.